This is Trepwire Week in Review for the week ending December 31st. I'm Haley Keen with Trep, a data, modeling, and analytics firm for the CMBS, commercial real estate, and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, Joe McBride, Head of CRE Finance, and Darren King, Head of CMBS. This week, Martha's taking some well-deserved time off, so we're here to switch gears ahead of the new year to share our predictions and resolutions for the commercial real estate and broader macroeconomic markets. Manis, where should we kick it off? Well, I have two predictions for next year on the economic front. I guess one's economic and one is more societal, and I'll throw them in there, and then I'll turn it over to Joe and Darren to react and perhaps give their own predictions for next year. Um, My first one is, I guess, a little bit contrarian. The first is that I think we're going to see a leveling off of inflation in 2022. There has been this ongoing expectation that inflation continues to ratchet higher and higher and higher and becomes a bigger issue throughout 2022. I'm taking the contrarian point of view for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think that Uh, Well, we know that there's been no more stimulus for the last nine months, and there's nothing more teed up in terms of putting cash in people's pockets at this point. I think that over time, one of the things that has added to the inflationary pressure has been supply chain issues and workforce, uh, lack of participation. I think there's a tendency on the part of market watchers to have recency bias And I think the thought is that the supply chain issues never get resolved and people never come back to work. And I think the further we get from unemployment benefits, ending stimulus, um, running out, people burning through whatever they've gotten, more people come back to the workforce and uh, supply chain issues, just because companies need them to get figured out, get figured out. So that would be my economic one. and, And I'll turn it over to Joe and Darren, and then I'll give my societal one. I'm taking the other side of that bet, Manus. I think we're six plus percent for at least for 2022. Maybe, maybe towards the end. You know, I guess it depends on what you mean by leveling off. But I think that the home price appreciation that hasn't really been baked into CPI will actually start to get baked in there, and the wage growth, which I guess it is in some ways baked in there, but not really. I think you know the 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 amount of wage growth we're seeing at the bottom end and at the kind of middle end top, like across the board has been extremely strong. And I think that, you know, if you continue to see corporate margins staying fat, the only way that that can happen is if you're increasing prices. So, you know, I don't think that the supply chain snarls last the entire year, but at the same time, I don't think you go from, you know, a used 2014 Jeep Grand Cherokee being worth $23,000 when it was 17,000 two years ago. I don't think that goes back to 17,000 over the course of one year. You know what I mean? So I think a lot of this stuff takes a longer time to trickle through the supply chain. Before I throw it over to Darren, I, I should probably quantify this. When I say leveling off, I'm certainly not saying a plunge. I don't think that we're going back to that 2% CPI number in short order. I, I think what we're seeing is very, very modest bumps, you know, a flattening off of where we are now. Uh, I take your comments to heart, Joe, about the housing impact and so forth. But down here in South Carolina, I'm already starting to see gas below three bucks a gallon again, right? I'm starting to see evidence 
that housing prices don't seem to be on this trajectory that is kind of uh, exponential as it seemed for, for a period of time. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. And I do think recency bias has something to do with it, which is, you know, you get on this inflation track and, and the headlines start to say, you know, here we go again, this is 1981 all over again. And uh, I, I don't think that's, that's uh, anywhere close to where we're headed. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of take the middle ground, sort of hedge both sides here, because there's three of us and why not? You know, there, there's certain aspects, I think rents are still going to continue to rise, um, where I can see some leveling off, kind of to Manus's point, not so much that you see this precipitous drop, but where it kind of levels off is, you know, we're going to get our dollar slice back, I think. The, the pizza slice for our New York listeners out there who are familiar with the dollar slice, that's been raised to $1.25, even $1.50 in places. Really annoying when you're trying to actually pay with cash for something to get that out there and have to find a few quarters or have them running out of quarters to give you back. I think we get those little things back toward you know more moderate levels, but at the, like to Joe's point of the, the car price, rising rents, things of that nature, I think are going to stay elevated. How often do we actually see prices go down other than, you know, I, I feel like technology, right? We've seen computer prices and things like that, chip prices go down over time. But the moment you see, you know, milk go up, you know, maybe it levels off or more, some more luxury uh, items like your furniture, your goods like that go up by 10 or 20 or $50. Does it ever really go back down? I mean, do we go back to prices that we had in 2000 for things? No, even at the 2% rate, those prices never go back down because companies don't have to, people get comfortable with it. And so the, you're going to see, I think, that that kind of stick around. Well, we will see. I think that, you know, we've talked about in the past two types of inflation, the kind that comes from incredibly depressed bases that took place in 2020, like hotel rooms and airfares. And some of the inflation that we're seeing is just huge jumps from uh, depression level pricing and there, I think that we're back to where we were. You know, certainly it seems that way for hotel rooms almost and, and for airfares. And then other things, you know, are, um, I think, stickier. And I think that wage side of it will be stickier. So I guess I should clarify that, right? If we saw a 40% increase in airfares over a six-month period as demand came back, we're not going to see 40% again in 2022, right? That That's the part that is leveling off because it comes from just such a depressed basis. But other parts of it, I think, you know, to your point, Darren, is true. I think car prices, they, they tend not to retrace earlier lows, right? I think we're stuck there. And, and that's probably true of wages as well. Not easy to tell your employee, like, hey, we gave you that raise last year, but now inflation's lower. So we're going to have to take some of it back. That's That never really happens. But Darren, you had me having like an old man moment, like, Back in my day, like back in my day, you could get two slices and a soda for five bucks. Now, when I go to the pizza shop, I'm spending like 13 or $14. And part of that is because now I get like three or four slices, but that's, that's a different type of inflation. It's like so no longer watches his, uh, his figure anymore. You can tell. <laughs> I, I do remember to date myself even more so than Joe. I do remember those commercials for McDonald's where you can get a hamburger, fries and a drink, give the guy a buck and still get change. Right, that was my youth. That you would get some uh, some coins back uh, if you were getting that that one meal. I'll turn a little bit now to societal. This uh, hopefully this doesn't strike a nerve with anybody. It's not meant to. It's not meant to be political in any way. 
Um, but I'm a numbers guy and I look at numbers all the time. And I think that what we are in now with COVID is the final throes of hopefully the last big wave of what we're going to see. Why do I say that? Well, I started looking at numbers recently, just uh, out of curiosity, probably too much time on my hands. And I was looking at some CDC numbers where they said that uh, 60% of all Americans, 62% actually are vaccinated. But when you think about the fact that you probably have de minimis numbers of people vaccinated under the age of 18, the numbers quickly become 72% or 74% of Americans are vaccinated. And then if you look at the fact that we've already had 50 million Americans that have gotten COVID and it's equally distributed, let's assume, between vaxxed and unvaxxed, right, by that ratio, then you have to assume that, you know, maybe 20%, 30% of the unvaxxed have natural immunity. And that should only go up now with COVID, with more and more people getting this Omicron variant, that if you do the math, it should be that we are getting very close to that 80, 85% number of people over the age of 18 that either have vaccinated immunity or natural immunity. And at that point, hopefully you're squeezing the last bit of pain out of the COVID thing. And that uh, hopefully leads to, it probably goes against my earlier point about inflation. You probably see a, a robust rebound at that point, things opening in full and are starting to see that we're on the other side of the mountain when it comes to COVID. Yeah, I got to give Casey Conway from the Red Shoe Economist a shout out. Hopefully he's listening. I was looking through Casey's uh, end of year kind of recap of he does like a naughty and nice list, which is very entertaining with lots of good data. And he had a number in there based on his calculations and uh, data that he looks at that those over the age of 12, 83% have some level of vaccination. So one of my predictions for 2022 is you're not going to get much higher than that, right? Of, of the people who could have gotten vaccinated by now, if they haven't by now, you're probably, it's highly unlikely that you'll convince them to in any way, shape or form in 2022. But at that level, 83% plus, you know, that we should be really, really happy about that, you know? And I think there's no eliminating COVID from the map. Like that's just not going to happen. It's like, you know, there's no eliminating the common cold or eliminating the flu at this point. So the transition from pandemic to endemic is what you're starting to see uh, the mainstream media kind of report on. And I think that's a positive, we're taking that positive step. Uh, and we talked about it last week, the NFL, the NHL, the NBA, these are, you know, pretty important institutions in America, even if, you know, you're not into sports, I think you could agree that they're pretty important institutions and they are relaxing their testing standards for vaccinated players. They are, you know, kind of pushing through this recent surge in terms of how many are testing positive. And I think that that's a, that's a good example of how corporate America is going to have to do. And, and kind of just, I think people in general, it's, it's time to, in my opinion, it's time to move forward. And, you know, as someone who got the cron for me, everybody is, is different for me. It was less than a cold. I hope that everyone else has the same experience if they get it. Yeah, that, I guess the prediction uh, that I'll make for 2022 in, in this sort of uh, conversation is to say that we move away from discussing the number of positive cases and move toward whatever discussions the mainstream media brings through or, or whatever 
sources it comes from into discussions of the hospitalization numbers, where we completely shift because that's, I think, what we're seeing now with the levels of vaccination. And obviously, I'm, you know, no epidemiologist or anything like that, but it's the growth, the rise in number of cases is obviously going off the charts, but the number of hospitalizations is not rising anywhere near as fast. And I think that's obviously the result of all the vaccination that's gone around. So I think we start seeing the reporting move toward the hospitalization side, that's again, another benefit to the economy, benefit to you know, corporate productivity that people are more comfortable being at work, being out in bars and restaurants, out shopping, doing those kinds of things, because look, we realize that this is going to be obviously not the same disease or virus, but this, you know, treated along the same lines of the flu every year, um, year in, year out. But if you're not going to the hospital, if you're not overly sick, you know, we can operate as a society with it, you know, as, as you put it, Joe, as an, as an endemic thing and, and can kind of move away from calling it a pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think all of this, you know, and we'll get into more of this later, is incredibly bullish for hotels. It's bullish to a degree for offices. I think it only takes offices back to where you were in 2019. It doesn't, uh, you know, in hotels, you probably have still incredible amounts of pent-up demand. In offices, you get more of a sense of certainty and you're returning to normal but we'll go through that a little bit more. So, so those are my predictions. Inflation levels off. The Omicron variant brings us to levels of immunity that start to have us believe that we're past this. I didn't even mention the, the new uh, therapeutics that Moderna and Pfizer are coming out, which, which will be also uh, a net positive for the, the pandemic. So I guess those two things go into my glass half full mindset, which I usually try to bring to the podcast. I don't know about that, Manis. You have been you have been half full more often, I would say, in the last several months or even even longer. But I've known you a long time. Sometimes you're a little bit more of a half empty guy. Sometimes, sometimes I go like the beard and Ted Lasso. I have like one of those dark weekends, and <laughs> right, I just kind of kind of disappear. We don't have nearly the level of obscure pop culture references that Ted Lasso does, but we do have some relatively obscure music references. You know, you mentioned Office Matters. I'll just kind of jump in because that, that that was the area that I was thinking about on the way into this podcast. And I was, as I usually do, I was kind of uh, following along with some of our data in terms of delinquency rates and also some data from Newmark, who puts out a nice kind of New York-centric office kind of data packet every month or so. And a couple of I don't know if these are bold predictions or not, but thinking of the ones that are less consensus, you know, to me, the, the castle security fob swipe number in New York City is at about 36% right now. Across the 10 major city average, it's a slightly higher. I think it's like near 40. To me, based on everything I'm seeing from the world of the white collar worker, I don't think this number gets above 60% in 2022. Like, even if what we're saying about COVID is true, to get that number above 60%, you have to have either 60% of all workers coming in five days a week, or 80 to 90% of workers coming in two or three days a week, right? Like some, there's some variation of that. And I just don't believe that that's going to happen, right? I just think that people have gotten so used to this work from home thing and the not commuting thing and in a lot of ways, you know, we've lost a lot, I think, 
for not being in the office kind of culture wise and training wise, but I think corporations have gained a lot as well, productivity wise, number of hours worked, you know, all that type of stuff. So that's kind of one of my, my predictions there and kind of piggybacking off of that. I'm going to say that our office delinquency rate increases and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go out there and say that it doubles, which is not a huge number right now. It's at 1.8%. So what's that 3.6, 3.6% is kind of high, but kind of relative to the entire world, 3.6% is not a crazy high number, but I do think, you know, maturing office buildings and large blocks of space being downsized, hybridized or whatever it is, you know, I just think there has to be this ripple effect that we've been seeing onesie twosie. It's going to start to kind of play out or continue to play out in 22. Along those lines, I wish I had the, the stat in front of me. There was someone who put out an article. They did um, some research on like LinkedIn or Indeed job postings and some astronomical number. And maybe one of our listeners out there saw this and I don't want to speculate on the number because I, I don't have it in front of me. There was some astronomical number of listings had the word remote as part of their job description. Um, and so I agree with you, Joe, that you're not going to see these, you know, 10 major markets, the um, office occupancy rates, you know, physical occupancy rates, you know, rise dramatically because even if we feel safe going back to the office, it's just, it's become a part of the the natural scheme of this is the work-life balance. This is the way companies operate. We've read so much about, you know, the great resignation and what it takes to get the younger generation into jobs and excited about them and, and motivated. And part of it is that I want to work from anywhere. I want to work from home a few days a week or all the time. And, and those things I don't think are going away. So I think you're going to see those major markets continue to to struggle to get back even close to where where we were, you know, pre-pandemic. I'll just kind of jump in on the, you know, anecdotally, I would say that the entry-level white-collar worker, you know, a lot of the students that I teach and you know, the younger people that I know, they want to get in the office, right? Because they're they're stuck in their studio apartment or in their mom's house, and they want to get out, right? And they want to meet people and they want to learn and get trained up and everything like that. Um, maybe not 100% of them, right? Maybe maybe it's 50-50 or whatever the number is. But I, I would definitely see the established kind of mid-career, late-career folks who have their relationships, who have their knowledge, and have gotten used to this work-from-home thing, and they have young-slash-teenage kids at home, they're seeing the benefit of work-from-home even more, and they have the power to institute these hybrid work models. So outside of the, you know, investment banks and the banks who are kind of have that very, very classic culture of get in the office and work your tush off. You know, I just think that it kind of you get it from both ends of the spectrum, right? You get it from the leaders of the firm, and you get it from a good portion of the entry level workers. But there's surely something lost in translation here, in terms of company culture. But, you know, I'm not smart enough to understand how much of it is outweighed, what you lose is outweighed by the benefits of flexibility and, and working remotely. I would say, you know, in terms of predictions for this year, I think that this is the first year, I guess it's to Joe's point, that we start to see some modest cracks in the performance of the office space. Last week with Lonnie, we were talking about, you know, Lonnie talked a little bit about how there's some similarities between malls 10 years ago and offices today. I, I don't share kind of the concern that he has, right? Certainly in terms of the magnitude of the problem we'll see 
But I do think that 2022 will be the year we start seeing cracks. I think number one, to Darren's point, we now have two years of muscle memory of not going to the office. It's hard to believe, but you know, in less than three months, we will be two years into this pandemic. That's a long time for new habits to kind of take root. And I think that they'll be hard to undo. And I think that LinkedIn anecdote you talked about, the number of jobs that are remote really underscores that, that point. I also think two years into this, we're now two years into what is normally a 10-year window for office leases, right? So now you have the 20% of people whose leases have come up. And usually when you're thinking about your leasing needs, you're starting 24 months ahead of when your lease is expiring to start figuring out your needs. You're starting to say, okay, where do I want to be in 2024? And I think that you have a lot of firms that are in the midst right now of saying, well, we either want to go to something new and clean and ESG sensitive with you know the proper spatial needs that the firm has and the right HVAC system and everything else. Or they're saying, we had 300,000 square feet, we now want to have 175,000 square feet. So I do think that this is the year that we start to see more of this. And I'll bring up three or four anecdotes that came out over the last couple of weeks that I'll bring to people's attention that, that kind of got me in this line of thinking. Uh, just this week, Dropbox in San Francisco dropped a $32 million lease termination fee. Uh, at one point, their headquarters is, is in San Francisco. It's recently built. The property is securitized behind a single asset CMBS deal. For a while, they said that they were going to try to sublet this space themselves. This week, $32 million uh, termination fee, right? Which takes subletting off the table. It takes flexibility down the road off the table. They are making this decision that we're out, right? So, you know, that's, that's just one anecdote. Uh, I have three or four stories in Chicago that we've been watching and writing about in Trepwire. 135 South LaSalle, which Darren talked about a couple of weeks ago, B of A has vacated that space. Amtrust came in and said, we're not going to pump in any new money into this property. It's likely going deed in lieu. That's a concern. 175 West Jackson went 30 days delinquent this month for the first time. It's DSCR has been under 10X for several years now. And then a trading alert that we put out a couple of days ago, 300 North LaSalle Street. A couple of months ago, we talked about Kirkland and Ellis vacating their 600,000 square feet in that property. And now this week, it came out that the Boston Consulting Group is similarly looking to move away from 300 North LaSalle. That's a huge loan, $450 million worth of CMBS debt split between an A note and a B note. They're going to have 800,000 square feet of space to fill. These loans make up big parts of 2014 deals. So when I'm talking about cracks, it's this type of thing. Big parcels, older stock, cities that have a lot of new inventory. The older stock needs a lot of investment to kind of move it from old feeling, law firm accounting firm to new feeling. And I think between that and, and some parts of New York and perhaps some other cities, we'll see these little nicks in the market where, where losses came where you never could have imagined them five or 10 years ago. So 
I'll throw two more office things at you and then I'll be done with office, maybe, maybe two and a half. My half is that if interest rates do rise, this becomes even more of a story, right? Because the other side of my brain keeps saying, well, you'll always have these massive, massive capital allocators out there ready to buy office buildings because they're just looking for any positive cash flowing asset, even if the cap rates are 4% or 3.5% or 4.5%, whatever, right? They have such low cost of capital that they'll, they'll be willing to take on that, what they see as still relatively low risk. But if interest rates increase, then that, you know, that uh, cap rate kind of threshold increases as well, uh, which could be an issue. Another thing coming out of the Newmark deck that I was looking at that's worth mentioning, it kind of just gives credence to what we hypothesize, you know, based on what's going on in the world. The average new lease size, like square footage, is down pretty significantly since pre-pandemic levels. And this is, again, New York City bias here. This is in New York City. They broke it down by Midtown, Downtown, and Midtown South. And Downtown, the average deal size went from about 23,000 square feet to 12,000 square feet, right? That's a 50% drop, right? In Midtown South, it went from 11,000 to 7,000. That's less, that's a 40% drop, right? And in, in kind of regular Midtown, it went from 13 and a half thousand to 10,000. So again, like another kind of 20 plus percent drop. So the story of smaller spaces is playing out as, as we would have expected. And so if you think about that, Manus, which you were talking about, the 20% of tenants that have their rollovers coming in the next two years, maybe they've got 25,000 feet in their current space. And, you know, the kind of prototypical story might be that they're going to go from 25 to 15, but they're going to go from, you know, B plus or B Lexington Ave 1950s to A plus one Vanderbilt, you know, and pay a much higher per square foot number, but kind of even out on how much they're paying in rent. Right. So the haves and I think the Wall Street Journal and Dan McNamara was tweeting about it yesterday that, you know, the haves and have nots, that was one of your themes from the very beginning, Manus, of this podcast, the haviest of haves and the have naughtiest of have nots. I think that's going to continue to play out uh, in the office. The last call here is WeWork has a chance here, right? Like if they can, because right now they've kind of moved away from actually leasing the space and taking on that risk and actually more are acting like a services business for landlords. So if you are that 1950s B plus office, you know, you might be more willing to bring in and pay a company to take a floor of space and lease it and kind of break it up and lease it out there. So, you know, I don't know, maybe I might put a couple of dollars in the WeWork SPAC. I mean, it's, they have to be dollars that I'm completely willing to lose 100% of, but, uh, you know, there might be something there. Turning to lodging, this was one of the hardest hit sectors during the pandemic, but recently we've been noting some green shoots in the market with hotel loan cures and increased transactions. So what do we predict for 2022? I think that, you know, we've seen really a terrific rebound in the hotel segment uh, for the last several months. We've talked about this in, in terms of falling delinquency levels, loans curing. We put out a piece in TREP Wire today, which outlined another 
eight or 10 sizable loans in the December remittance cycle that cured. I, I think we've probably seen about 25 over the last two months. You know, a lot of these loans have gone from not seeing a dime of interest payment since April 2020 to being brought current in November or December 2021. We've seen uh, an acceleration of transactions, big and small, uh, anywhere from cities that have not done particularly well during this period, like Houston and Chicago, to you know Puerto Rico and uh, Orlando and other places that have done pretty well. We've seen people paying up for hotels. Um, we saw that Sunstone deal where I think the cap rate was under five for that on 2019 revenues. So I, I think if, if anything scares me about the hotel market, it's that we've come too far too fast, that people are paying up for a recovery that may not be quite as explosive uh, as people were, are hoping for. You know, that doesn't mean we retrace where we were a year ago, but I do think that people who are buying hotels hoping for that, you know, eight to 10% return on something as things come back in 2022 and 2023 are disappointed by how much they paid for this stuff if the recovery doesn't kind of meet their expectations. Yeah, I don't have much different on hotels other than I'll throw in a couple numbers out there because why not? Put a stake in the ground. It, you know, only one or two listeners are going to really check my work, I think, six months from now. Uh, but to give some context, the lodging or the hotel delinquency rate as of the end of November was 9.4%. It had gotten above 20, I think almost up to 25% in the peak of the pandemic. To use Manis's term, I think both lodging and retail kind of level off in the six-ish range, right? Every, every month in the hotel side, we've been seeing drops of 50 basis points, 75 basis points, 100 basis points, depending on the particular month. I think you continue to see that kind of 50 basis point per month drop until you get to that level of, okay, the, the rest of the hotels that are in this delinquent bucket are the ones that are going to take a while to to figure out, to dispose of, right? We've talked about it the last several weeks. I am seeing kind of a real significant uptick in the number of hotel auctions, right? That you're seeing on, you know, the 10Xs and the real capital markets of the world. Uh, also from actually our friends at Paramount Lodging, uh, you know, they're, they're putting out new asking for bid emails and listings like at a tremendous clip. So the cures will happen even of the bad stuff or of the, the struggling stuff, but there is probably that kind of clogged up five or 6% that's gonna take a lot longer. I'll take a prediction in a, another route, not going at the delinquency, but looking at from a CMBS perspective, the volume numbers, and I think conduit hotel volumes, and, and speaking specifically about conduit because in the single asset, single borrower market, we've actually seen some um, sizable portfolio acquisitions and even some individual asset acquisitions that have actually sustained some some decent totals for that part of the market. But on the conduit side, I think we're going to see, you know, hotel origination percentages back up to the seven or eight percent, which would be almost three times what they were for for 2021. I think you're going to stay, you know, the New York City market, and I think that's going to continue to struggle probably improve some from where it is because, I mean, as an old boss once told me, you can't fall off the floor. But I think just the general 
limited service, sort of semi-luxury, you know, vacation-oriented things that can make it into the conduit market from a from a size uh, sizing perspective to fit into that framework will will go up dramatically. The market will get more comfortable lending on it. Investors will get more comfortable um, buying assets, seeing numbers now put together over a six, 12, 18 month period, understanding the ebbs and flows that you know the pandemic can can drive through in terms of, of traffic and occupancy, ADRs, and we'll see the numbers grow substantially from, from where they were in 2021. Yeah, the problem you have with New York is so many hotels closed entirely over the last 24 months that every sign of an uptick will bring more opening of hotels, right? People will say, now we can make it. So it's not like the guys that are open, if all of a sudden Broadway reopens and you know the city is buoyant again and people are coming back to the office, that you have this kind of clear runway where you can charge whatever you want because people are flooding back to the city. It's also going to bring back more inventory. And so I'm with you, Darren. I think that New York continues to struggle. Chicago is another place that struggles. And, you know, but to my point before, I, I don't want anybody to walk away with this as a, a gloom and doom point. It's only that I think that um, the equity returns on hotels will not be what people are hoping for because people are paying up so much for these assets right now. There's just not a lot of room for um, further appreciation, in, in my opinion. Let's turn to the retail market. Manis, what are your thoughts here as we turn to 2022? Retail, I think, is is status quo. All right. I think that malls are malls. The class A stuff will muddle through. The ones that are reaching their maturity dates will get refinancing at valuations close to what they got when they took out their last loan, whether that's five or 10 years ago. No losses there to speak of, but no price appreciation either. It's kind of grinding it out. If you're the Simons or, you know, the GGP stock, you know, which was now Brookfield, I think that, you know, the B's and C's continue to get resolved on a dollar price basis, which means, you know, you're not trading on a cap rate, you're trading on a valuation of 10 million or 15 million or 20 million. And that stock continues to get resolved uh, to the likes of Namdar and Kohan and others and I think that, you know, grocery anchored and Walmart, Lowe's, Home Depot, Target anchored continue to muddle through, right? You still see high demand, not huge price appreciation, but it's a safe place to put your money to get your treasury plus returns. Probably as boring a story as there is. So I'll, I'll make a few predictions in the retail market, but first sort of prediction slash public service announcement out there that I'll make is... Market, please stop talking about the repurposing, the conversion of the mall into industrial, that Amazon's going to come and buy it all. That's been the story of, you know, or the talking point of March of 2020 through now. And my prediction will be that someone out there will listen to me and stop talking about that. It doesn't happen. I know a listener out there will pick up that one, one or two. One person maybe, Darren, will stop talking about that based on, but I agree. <laughs> Hopefully, just, uh, if I can get through to one, I've gotten, I've gotten my audience, I've, I've done something productive uh, in my time on the podcast. But this story, and someone out there will be like, we'll point to an example where it actually worked. But this story is so off base and all the, you know, I think, I can't remember the name of the firm. Uh, one of the uh, big brokerage houses had set up a team for this specific purpose. 
to create and, and orchestrate these conversions and they just disbanded that team because it never happened. The only time Amazon or Walmart steps in to take over one of these malls and you know, CMX shakes shorts, you can rejoice on this, is when the mall has completely died. When all the inline tenants are gone, the anchors are gone, nobody, you know, these firms don't come in to just take over the Sears or the JCPenney 150,000 square foot box and let the rest of the mall operate. They're coming in for the entire, you know, whatever it is, 12, 15 acres. And so to a CMBS investor out there who's thinking, okay, hey, this can, you know, get me more than the appraised value. The only way that's happening is when they can buy it for not just pennies on the dollar, but, you know, next to nothing because it's 0% occupancy. So that's my big prediction for, for retail is that that story goes away once and for all. Darren evangelizing to the CRE masses. I love it. He's going from uh, town to town, crying, calling out the, the end of the mall conversion story. I like it. <laughs> the end of the story that never began, really, right? I would say, Darren, probably you'll see a lot more Amazon. If Amazon's going to do anything in a mall, it's they're going to open up a store in the mall, right? Like that, that's going to happen a lot more, I think. Because a lot of you see it, right? And all of these direct-to-consumer online brands are continuing to open up spaces. Now, they're, go they're only going to open up spaces in high-end Class A malls where they think their consumer is. But uh, Amazon, though, you know, they have nowhere else to go. They've kind of, they've reached the frontier of the internet. So it's time to enter the real world now. Well, I think Amazon's going to do a Google search to see what malls Apple is in, get it all. Like, <laughs> Amazon, Google, and Apple is going to be this combined thing, and that's exactly where they're going to go. But I think you're dead on, right? They're going to open up 2,500 square foot, you know, Amazon Go spots in you know the top malls in the country. But that's not saving. That's not saving the ones that we're you know we're constantly talking about here. Not not to mention the fact that you know where Apple shows up is that Class A guy. You don't you don't see an Apple store in a in a Class B or a Class C. And if Amazon follows that same suit. Right. It's just the rich getting richer, right? The guys that are owning the, the malls that are still making 450 bucks or 500 bucks a square foot uh, in line that gets that tenant. It's not the guy who's uh, already on fumes. So Darren, let me ask you this. Lonnie would be a good one for this question too, though. Like something has to happen to those malls that do die. Like they, how long does that take? Is that going to be 20 years, 20, 25 years is when we'll finally see, you know, a mall like that turned into something else? Or are we just going to see grass growing through the cracks of the, the asphalt for a really, really long time? So it's actually an interesting story because once they do completely go, then they become actually attractive potentially to Amazon, Walmart, big distribution centers, because they have, they actually have several benefits, you know, they clearly can't support retail and, and foot traffic the same way that it did when it was probably built in the 1970s. But it is still probably semi-infill to, you know, population centers. The main thing it has that, you know, vacant land doesn't is it's got infrastructure. And that's huge to Amazon. They don't have to build roads and traffic lights, put in, you know, water, sewer, gas, and electric. Some of the attraction of these fully, you know, dead and, and you know, leveled malls is that, you know, all that infrastructure is built for you. Now you can just put what you need from a you know 40 foot clear heights and whatever else Amazon needs in a distribution center right on top of that and you've got all those other pieces already in place the other uses if you're in a, if you're in an area that you know someone doesn't see that need for now you're a park and in some cases right 
you know, hopefully they don't let it become tumbleweeds because that's just not good for the, you know, the locale that it's in. But the other thing is you're also going to see, I think, a lot of tax incentives and things like that. They need, you know, malls, even dying ones, still produce millions of dollars of tax revenue um, for, you know, for the local municipalities. And so they're, they're going to want to get something out of that, anything they can, because losing it entirely is, is crushing to some of these, you know, local communities from a revenue base. Yeah, I, I will say this, that if you're going to be wrong, Darren, and I don't think that you are, I think that your, your instinct is right, that this doesn't turn into distribution space. But if you are wrong, it's not Amazon who takes it. It's the fact that Macy's and Nordstrom's and others want to compete with Amazon. And they're saying this is a cheaper alternative for us than building our own new distribution centers, right? We've seen this in Delaware uh, at a couple malls, I think in the Dover mall, um, either Dillard's or Macy's did this where they turn their their owned parcel into a distribution center. And if it's, if it's gonna go down that path, it'll be from those types that think, well, we're already paying for this. We have it, we know how it works. We know how to get our trucks in and out. Let's flip this. It's not gonna come from Amazon. I agree with that uh, entirely. Now, going the other side of the doom and gloom, I'll make one more prediction that's, I guess, positive to some and will be negative to others. And, and that's just to say that I think the CMX six shorts kind of leave 2022 unfulfilled. I think while well, we just mentioned, you know, the doom and gloom, I think of the malls, even the BNC malls are going to trickle along. And we know a lot of those are coming due in, in 22 now. Um, some actually won't start to mature at the end of 21. But I think working those out is still going to take a lot longer than, you know, than the, than the next 12 months to see that come to fruition. So those shorts, um, and there are obviously many of them sitting out there in CMBX 6 are going to have another year of waiting for their trade to actually be materialized. Now, I'm not saying the price is going to rise or anything like that. You'll still have your mark-to-market gains and maybe even some benefit there, but you're not you're not actually going to see it monetized in 2022 the way I think you'd hope you would if you're if you're sitting in that short the short side of that trade. Yeah, it, it looks like you know the way that plays out is the the move would have been close out your shorts in June of 2020, right? Don't pay that carry another couple of years, right? At that point, you saw. 20 points of price appreciation on your short, right? 20 points of price drop from kind of mid nineties to, to low seventies. You get out at that point, you've made a nice killing and you didn't pay two more years of carry. Um, that may very well be what we end up seeing. That's the epilogue of that story, but we'll find out in the next uh, 18 months or so. So last on our list of the CRE property types is multifamily. A few months into the year, we were looking into areas of concern for the sector in terms of occupancy numbers, but overall, we've noted that multifamily has been a sector that has stood strong. What do we expect for 2022? I'll go a little bit contrarian because multifamily has been such a wonderful performer in terms of price appreciation. Whatever dips we saw in San Francisco and New York were short-lived. Rents rebounded pretty quickly. Occupancy started to rebound as well. Uh, when you get out of those cities, we saw really solid per square foot rents uh, go up, monthly rents go up in those areas. I will say 2022 is the point where people start scratching their head and saying, are we letting underwriting standards slip here? Are we counting on too much further price appreciation, rental growth? And I'm not saying this will manifest itself in higher delinquency rates. But if people recall in 2005, Tad Phillip at Moody started saying, we're just starting to see the beginning of what appears to be froth. People paying too much for assets, counting on 
being able to pass through five and seven and nine percent rent hikes for as far as the eye can see. And I think that in 2022, somebody comes out like a Tad Phillip and says, this is, I know there, there is no other alternative, but this is the kind of thing where we're really chasing returns that uh, are starting to look elusive. I think multifamily is the area that it would be most impacted uh, by rising rates because the cap rates are so low. You just, if you start to see rates go up, you just don't have the cushion, you know, that spread between the cap rate and where your treasury rate plus spread to borrow to buffer you. And that, that's one of those things that gets concerning, right? The, the limiting factor on a lot of multifamily loans right now is not so much the LTV, it's the debt service coverage ratio. Um, and so rising rates, if they come, um, and that's another prediction that I'll let somebody else make uh, on the pod today if they want to, is that, you know, is, is potentially a dangerous factor for that. That said, I think the series CLO market where you're looking at more of those transitional type properties continues to hum in 2022, maybe even surpassing this year's numbers. Um, and the reason I put the two together is because multifamily makes up about 60%, not a little bit more of, of the series CLO volume. Uh, but those, those types of transitional kind of conversion, you know, bringing properties to, you know, market rents and market occupancy levels, I think is still a very viable trade in the market um, and one that'll continue going into 2022. So let me stick on that point for a second. So you don't think the, the heavy reliance on the CRE CLO market for multifamily is kind of an early warning sign as a crack that people are kind of loosening their standards. They're going with more transitional stuff. When you do transitional, you're usually accepting higher LTV and lower debt service coverage ratio. You don't see that as an issue. I don't, because um, I think you're going into it knowing that. Like the series CLO market, you understand what you're lending on. You understand that something is 60 or 70% occupied today, what the rents are, you know, what the rents and you know, the average rent in that market is. And looking, now you've got to have an operator that knows how to execute on a business plan, but you understand that there's a business plan associated with those assets. And so I think it's actually in some ways, a safer underwriting story because you're not just relying on the market moving up in order to support that. You're relying both on the market, uh, but more so on the sponsor's ability to execute a you know put together and, and well-defined business plan. So I think that the other side of that coin, Darren, to me anyway, is not necessarily whether like, of course, some small percentage of all of those types of stories are going to have some sort of issue. Rehab takes longer than expected. Rehab costs more than expected. You, you know, overestimated market rents, market occupancy, whatever it may be, right? So far, that has not been an issue for the CRE, CLO market in general, right? Because the mortgage REITs, other than for that short period of time, you know, in March 2020, when they all kind of had a liquidity crunch, they've been able to handle those stories, either buying the loans out of the CLO to kind of protect their reputation in the market or uh, just kind of, you know, very active asset management, whatever the case may be. I think what breaks that story is the supply of capital, right? And because there's been so much supply of capital, you know, there's a lot of room margin for error. And I think that the thing that breaks that story, I'm not saying that this will happen, but if it, if something broke, it would be because interest rates have increased significantly or, you know, the market for CRE, CLO bonds widens significantly because the big buyers are kind of taking a step back or whatever that may be, right? So it's kind of like 
the supply of capital on one side is uh, allowing for a lot of flexibility and room for error on the operator side, right? Or on the lender side, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think that stands out as, as certainly one of the risks associated with that market. And frankly, you know, more, not necessarily unqualified, but maybe uh, less experienced players getting into it because of the availability of the collateral that you're, you're looking for more and more people to lend to, you know, back doing this in 2019, 2020, and even the beginning of this year, and a lot of, you know, you're lending to a lot of experienced folks and are there startups and, hey, I can get into this business too, type folks who are, are going to find their way into uh, acquiring properties and getting loans that they, you know, don't have a great, as great a feel of, of how to manage and how to operate and how to, how to redevelop. So turning to shout outs, we did have a few in this shortened week. The first was from Susie S., who is a loyal listener. Uh, she actually gave us a new listener alert. So Susie let us know that she was driving with her 10-year-old daughter, Lori, to see the movie Sing 2 while listening to the Trepwire podcast. And Lori chimed in and said, I was going to make you turn this off, but these guys are actually funny. So Lori, I have to agree with you. I sometimes also want to turn it off, but I must say they are pretty funny. Susie also noted that they were two out of the eight people in the movie theater that day. I think that might have been a movie issue and not necessarily a movie theater issue. All right. If you went to Spider-Man, Susie, you might have been doing a little bit better. But I'm glad that we can at least make a 10-year-old laugh. I don't know if we make anyone else laugh, but I'll, I'll take that as a win. I think Lori needs a Trepwire podcast t-shirt, so look out for that. And then lastly, BB Doggett on Twitter suggested the last episode of the podcast in response to a tweet asking for podcasts to queue up on a long drive. So thanks for that one. And then to close, we may all still be reflecting on what happened in 2021, but does anyone have any 2022 resolutions? Well, I'll jump in first. And let me start by saying, uh, you know, giving a quick note of gratitude to everybody that has listened to us this year. It was Wonderful getting to know so many people. I'll give another shout out to Ann L, who reached out to me on LinkedIn. She would like us to do a, a more robust uh, view of Europe periodically, or even start a European podcast, uh, which we will take under advisement. Uh, if that means a trip overseas uh, next year, then even more likely that it'll happen. But just an enormous amount of gratitude for those that listen, reach out, send us your ideas, uh, engage in intelligent debate about the various issues that we're talking about, give us tips and, and so forth. Just just really grateful for that. Uh, a reminder that uh, several of us will be in Miami uh, in a couple days, I think the 9th to the 12th. So if you're in Miami and you want to meet us for a cocktail, please do so. And lastly, my resolution for next year will be to make up for lost time with my friendships and my family. I felt like I've missed a lot of opportunity to hang with people and visit and play golf and go to sporting events and family events and so forth. And uh, I think there's just a lot of people out there that fell through the cracks and, and were lonely these last couple of years and didn't get out of their house nearly as much as they, as they needed to. And I hope 2022 is the year that I could triple down on meeting people for dinner and, and so forth. So that's my, my resolution and I, and I hope I can keep it. So um, as we come on, uh, coming to year end, I just wanted to thank everyone on the podcast for uh, allowing me to join your family a few times over the course of the year. It's been exciting and fun to see how 
uh, how this all gets done. And also want to hope that Haley doesn't put out any of my miscues uh, in a blooper reel. Just stick to Joe and Manis for those. Uh, but my resolution for 2022, kind of a little bit real estate oriented with it. Uh, we lament a lot on this podcast and, and all of us in the market about the loss of storefronts and the, and the vacancies out there. And while I won't necessarily be doing a whole lot of shopping, uh, given my lifestyle on Madison Avenue, uh, my resolution for 2022 is to shop local. We want to see those storefronts survive. You know, you got to shop with the, you know, not just buying stuff on Amazon or, or Target.com or Walmart, uh, but using those local housewares and, and stores out there. So for me, that's kind of what I want to take into 2022. Amen to that. And uh, keep tipping generously your waiters and waitresses and bartenders and so forth. Joe, how about you? So I appreciate what you guys said there. And I think that that uh, I can put those on my own list. I think for me, one silly resolution might be to uh, do my Christmas shopping a little bit earlier. I got a, a little bit of hot water with the uh, significant other when I said I got to run out to the mall on December 23rd. <laughs> But I always come through with good gifts and we did get to see, I did uh, uh, take my son and he got to hang out with Santa and ask for a Batman motorcycle. So that was, that was a positive, you know, I think this might be kind of a weird one, but, you know, I think I would like to uh, think less about work. (laughs) Now, hopefully none of our bosses are listening to this podcast, but I do think that uh, kind of along the same line as you, Manis, right? With with the people in your life outside of work, are probably more important than work. And uh, I think I spend a lot of my time when I'm not on the podcast or not answering emails or not slacking or not doing actual work. I think I think I still think a lot about work. And uh, you know, maybe if I spent a fifty percent of that time reaching out to friends, family, whoever it might be you know, quality of life for me and hopefully for them, maybe not for them, uh, would be improved. So maybe that and a little less Twitter. (laughs) Because Twitter can be great, but it can also be a toxic uh, death trap uh, that you spend too much time on. So a little bit more face to face, a little bit less uh, Twitter and Zoom and Netflix and all that other stuff is probably good for the soul. Thanks, guys. And we'll see you in 2022. With that, we'll close. We'll give a final shout out to Martha Kocher, who we missed today. And a thank you, as always, to our loyal listeners for tuning in each week. We hope you have a happy new year. Join us next week as we review what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or just a comment, send an email to podcast.trep.com. For more info, visit trep.com and subscribe to the Trepwire podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right.